On the last episode of The New Arab Voice, we covered the horrific and unfolding tragedy of the massive earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria on the morning of February 6th. With the help of the New Arab's Levant correspondent, Will Christou, we heard from the victims who were still waiting for their loved ones to be pulled from the rubble that was once their homes or mourning lost friends and relatives. When we ended that episode on February 10th, the death toll across Turkey and Syria had stood at 21,000. Today, on February 24th, the death toll has risen past 47,000, with thousands more still unaccounted for. With the immense human tragedy of the earthquake, questions are now being asked about the response to the earthquake and what comes next. This week on The New Arab Voice, we're looking at Syria. Was the response to the earthquake in Syria adequate? What does it mean for humanitarian efforts in the northwest of the country? And how have the Assad regime in Damascus reacted? Welcome to The New Arab Voice. When the earthquake struck in the northwestern region of Syria, there was immediate chaos. But even before the earthquake, the region was suffering under the weight of one of the worst humanitarian crises the world has witnessed in the past 100 years. In northwest of Syria, we had a population of nearly 4.5 million people. I mean, we talk about 1 million women, 2.3 children, and nearly 3 million that are internally displaced. My name is Hazem Rehawi. I'm the Senior Programs Manager at the American Relief Coalition for Syria. The American Relief Coalition for Syria is a secular, non-political coalition of Syrian diaspora-led humanitarian organisations that provide multi-sector relief inside Syria, as well as assistance and services to Syrian refugees in regional host countries and in the US. Over 10 years of brutal civil war in Syria has wrought untold levels of death and destruction on the country. And in the northwestern region, which to this day is still controlled by opposition forces, a humanitarian crisis has gripped the area, leaving it reliant on aid. Aid, of course, is carried by Syrian local partners and Syrian diaspora organizations. The UINGOs were supporting, and the UN were supporting these Syrian local staff or Syrian organizations with aid coming from Turkey, mostly from Turkey through cross-border. UN agencies' contribution to all of that was around 53,000 trucks since July 2014 through Bab al-Hawa and Bab al-Salame. Bab al-Hawa and Bab al-Salame are two main border crossings between Syria and Turkey. Before the earthquake itself, unfortunately, humanitarian organizations were facing a downward projection. We were facing donor fatigue. And um, other crises around the world, including Afghanistan, Ukraine, and Ethiopia, were taking prisoners, understandably. But yet, the situation in Syria was going into also a bad direction, with the economic context uh, becoming dire by the day, and poverty rising up very, very high. Donors were telling us we, we should anticipate cuts in funding, so everything was tightening for us. There were no increases that we were anticipating. Humanitarian cases going up, 
age is going down and we were stuck in that cycle. In the shadow of this ever-growing humanitarian crisis, the earthquake hit the region as people slept in their beds. In that instant, the need for aid and support exploded. So UN agencies were very limited to only using Babel Hawa, while the NGOs were using any of the other crossing borders in the northwest of Syria, mostly through Babel Salame and Al-Rai and Jarablus in the north, and then you have Babel Hawa. One of the major difficulties in responding quickly lay in the fact that Turkey, from where much of the aid comes from, was even more affected by the quake. Of course, when the earthquake happened, it impacted, I mean, the worst area possible for us because it impacted our backbone of the response, which is Turkey, where our staff, our logistics, our head, like the, the, the main responders were being in Hatay and Gaziantep, and at the same time impacted the people that we are serving in northwest of Syria. So in terms of logistics, Babel Hawa, Babel Salame and all of these crossings were closed immediately. Road conditions were really bad. So essentially what happened at that at the especially at the first hours were Syrian saving Syrian. I mean essentially it was Syrian research and rescue teams, Syrian NGOs and Syrian diaspora, because we have our partners in there leading the charge. Nothing we could we could have nothing coming from outside. It's the people impacted saving other people that are impacted. Because sometimes people, when they look at the search and rescue team from the white helmets, they are themselves impacted. They are the ones who have been impacted. So that was the essence of it. We mobilized very quickly, trying to save as many lives as possible, especially in the 72 hours that are usually considered the golden hours to do such search and rescue. Syrians in the Northwest worked day and night often with their bare hands, to dig out survivors from the rubble. Many aid workers and organisations not affiliated with the United Nations had already been in the region, providing support for many years. They were themselves stuck in the badly hit region of southeastern Turkey. And we never anticipated such unusual, unprecedented event. I mean, you can prepare yourself for an escalation of hostilities, you can prepare yourself for, and we were already under cholera spreading out. So you can have preparation, but nothing into that scale. I mean, I can claim that Turkey did not have that kind of preparation. Nothing capacity-wise, we utilized whatever we had. It's the 3,000 strong search and rescue team and other local organizations working on normal or usual humanitarian response to the Syria crisis in Northwest Syria. Those that were available did whatever they could to help whoever they could. In the first few days following the earthquake, as the border between Syria and Turkey shifted under the weight of chaos and uncertainty, the quickest way for Syrians to get help for the immediate search and rescue would have come via Damascus. But the ongoing conflict in Syria and the ruling Assad regime ensured that that would not happen. The documentation against the government of Syria denial of aid has been, I, I don't think anything has been on part on this. So unfortunately, we're dealing with a government that is mostly relinquishes its responsibility on areas that doesn't control, but claiming sovereignty and, and authority on those areas. The ability to, for them to do is minimal. 
and their willingness to do this is minimal. I'm looking at it from all perspectives. When help was desperately needed, the regime in Damascus, perhaps unsurprisingly, did not come to their aid. And from the international community, in spite of the numerous calls, the northwestern region was met with a deafening silence. I mean, the problem is that they were stuck with the politics of aid again and again. It's about where to access and what to send and what kind of it. To be clear, the Saudis and the Qataris were, they sent trucks, but I think that was the second day or the third day, and it was mostly aid on it. Remember, I'm talking mostly here about search and rescue efforts, because in the first hours, what we needed was to pull as many people out from these uh, rubble as possible. I think when when we were in contact with the White Helmets, they received two teams, one volunteer team from Egypt. They didn't have equipment, so they used the White Helmets equipment. The second I heard there was a Spanish team that came inside, but still same thing. Nothing on the level like what Turkey has received in terms of the response, because simply as it is, the UN system is supposed to help and assist countries in such crises. It did not know how to do that in northwest of Syria. As if we are just outside of the system. If you are outside of the system, we can't make a system work for you. Hazem is in no doubt that the failure of the international community to overcome the politics of the region and send aid quickly when it was needed in those early days cost people their lives. It's the people impacted saving other people that are impacted. Because sometimes people, when they look at the search and rescue team from the White Helmets, they are themselves impacted. They are the ones who have been impacted. So that was the essence of it. We mobilized very quickly, trying to save as many lives as possible, especially in the 72 hours that are usually considered the golden hours to do such search and rescue. But nothing came. The northwestern region has been in dire need of aid for years and has managed to get some aid, but never enough to thrive, just enough to survive, often only barely. In this region, aid falls into two main categories, cross-line aid and cross-border aid. Cross-line aid has a long history in Syria uh, throughout the past 12 years where the Syrian government has basically restricted most cross-line aid um, to, to the point of besieging about 5 million people at one point in the conflict. I'm Natasha Hall. I'm a senior fellow at the Middle East Program with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Cross-line aid here refers to aid that travels across front lines in the conflict. That is to say, from areas controlled by the Assad regime into areas outside their control like northwestern Syria. And, you know, ransacking or even uh, looting uh, aid convoys, especially those carrying medical supplies to these opposition-held areas. Such grievous violations have been well documented multiple times over the course of the conflict. Of all the aid delivered to northwestern Syria, only a very small percentage goes cross-line. The vast majority is cross-border, from Turkey into Syria. Multiple crossing points straddle this border. All these crossing points can be used by local organisations, but not the UN, which in theory should have the greatest capacity to provide aid. Until recently, UN aid could only go through the Babalhawa crossing point, 
This was conditional on a UN Security Council resolution that was subject to renewal every six months. And with Russia, an ally of Syria, holding a place on the Security Council, renewal of this resolution was not always guaranteed. Following the earthquake on February 12th, a Security Council resolution was passed to open two additional crossings, Bab al-Salama and al-Rai. These crossings will remain open for just three months. You cannot respond to four million people in a protracted displacement situation through a renewal of an uncertain mandate every three months. It has completely atrophied the response already. Uh, UN agencies have their foot out the door. There is every chance that this cycle of constant renewals will go on for a long time. The Bab al-Hawa crossing has been subject to constant renewals since 2014. It's made the situation from the earthquake so much worse than it needed to be. I mean, you had doctors at the, you know, the entrance of hospitals just choosing who was going to live or die because they didn't have enough ventilators, they didn't have enough medical personnel, they didn't have enough beds. And and this was this was problems that emanated from, you know, before the earthquake where you had, you know, 18 major hospitals closed, you had 400 medical facilities, educational facilities, wash facilities closed because of funding cuts. The decision to open new border crossings to the UN would have also have to have met the approval of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. But it is likely that this approval was granted by him with the hope that there will be something else in return. This became evident when it was reported on February 22nd by Reuters that the Assad regime had been pushed by the UAE to open the crossings in exchange for a continuing normalisation of ties between the two countries. I mean, I think it goes without saying that any country, especially the Assad regime, would use any moment in time to advance its its interests, right? And in this case, with the Syrian regime, it's the interests of a very small cohort of people. And so, of course, they would use this moment <laughs> to ask for lifting sanctions, to ask for more aid, to ask for greater normalization. I think what's what's more interesting, um, and I've, I've noted this before, is how other countries like Gulf countries, but others as well, even European countries, have used this as a moment to sort of accelerate that drive as well. With the notion that it's time to move on, it's time to, to move forward with humanitarian aid, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But it seems like this trend is moving beyond humanitarian aid. And unfortunately, I think with this conflict, it's certainly put humanitarians in future contexts in a very difficult position. Because a lot of political moves have been made under the guise of humanitarianism throughout this conflict. And that's certainly happening today. Civilians in the northwestern region of Syria have been victimized by the Assad regime various armed groups in the area, and Russia. They are also victims of international politics, trapped between violent powers who will stop at nothing and an international system that will not reach out to provide sufficient help. There, there needs to be some kind of momentum amongst the donor community in cooperation with Turkey, especially now after the earthquake, on what is going to be the more stable response for the Northwest? Because it's not going to be cross-line if we're making all of these 
you know, decisions in terms of normalization without really getting any guarantees from the Syrian regime. In lieu of that, there needs to be some kind of momentum to improve this response for a protracted crisis. And that's what this is. This is a protracted crisis now. And so you can't have over a million people in flimsy tents for the next 10 years suffering through, you know, frigid winters over and over and over again. That's not what those tents were made for. For Hazem, the recent earthquake and the lack of a timely international response was confirmation of what he had long believed. It exposed it in in its very worst way. I mean, this was a total exposure of how our current aid systems are not designed to respond to territories that are uh, under de facto authorities or in whatever reason they are out of the governmental structures, let me say it in this way. Because, I mean, and this is for us a frustrating thing. And we were, and I was talking to friends about the need academically or outside when we, and hopefully we can contribute to this when we have a better situation in Syria, because now our focus is on the response. But a, the, the inability of the system to mobilize and do its work in territories that are beyond controls of governments or anything, for whatever reason it is. Syria is not the only context where there is protests or there is de facto authorities or there is a civil war. And it was impacted by the worst dimensional disaster in Europe the past 100 years. The system did not mobilize in the correct way. The system should have crossed borders to save lives because this is the main need. And it didn't do that because of the politicization. The response to the earthquake in northwestern Syria has clearly shown that radical change in international aid regimes is needed. Not only to ensure that those who need help get help, but also to help people and families rebuild their lives and end the aid cycle that forces them to continually live on the bare minimum, struggling month to month. Those of us who have been engaged on this for many years have offered several alternatives. One of them being that the UN actually doesn't need a Security Council resolution to deliver this assistance, Um, as has been highlighted yet again in a letter that was just issued a few days ago by 16, you know, preeminent judges, including, you know, Stephen Rapp and and Richard Goldstone, um, saying that Security Council resolution is not needed to deliver impartial international humanitarian aid cross-border into non-government controlled areas. There is the crime that this area is besieged by Assad and that the international community has been complicit in that siege in the sense that we've allowed them to strangle the area and haven't recognised that the law permits the cross-border assistance, said Stephen Rapp, former US ambassador at large for war crimes. Removing the UN Security Council from the issue of cross-border aid would be a logical and very welcome step forward. Vital aid shouldn't be politicised. It shouldn't recognise borders or political affiliations. Vital humanitarian aid should be delivered to the people who need it when they need it. But however desperate the need for change is, it currently looks unlikely. So, I mean, I think that we will fall back on on negotiations every few months. I mean, realistically speaking, I think that's what will happen probably for the foreseeable future. And, you know, more compromises will be made in order to get to that vote. And we will see 
increased donor fatigue, uh, especially when it comes to the Northwest, which I think was pretty well crystallized in the aftermath of this earthquake, just sort of diminishing interest, which is unfortunate because I think that this earthquake should have been a realization that something needs to change. And it, and it can, again, I think it's just a matter of, of the will um, to do that, especially amongst the, the donor governments. An aid system, a humanitarian system that relies on governments doesn't work. I mean, you need to have something that moves very quickly beyond politics. The, the current system is not serving the humanitarian needs of the population. Like I said, if there is a volcano starting in some place, there shouldn't be any obstacles for mobilization of aid on this. Nor, neither political, nor logistical, nor whatever you can mention. Politics is always part of our life. We can't allow politics or difference of opinions to, to stop aid and humanitarian organizations from saving lives. Going forward, Hazem wants to see a greater emphasis put on local efforts and local expertise. The second lesson that I can add is that localization. I mean, we were the ones doing everything. We were the ones who were carrying the rubble. We were the ones who were in the end, when when the time mattered, it was the local staff that were doing all of these things. It was us sitting in the diaspora, burning the nightlight because we wanted to do whatever we can to support our colleagues. It is that kind of the work that we need to be supported. For me, this is also another example of why we are been demanding localization from the beginning. Direct funding for local organizations that can support these work. We've been asking for this for years, and now the world has seen why, why, we, why we are demanding this. Because when, when time is matter, this is what the local staff and, and the trained system can allow to, to do its job. It would have been almost impossible to predict the recent earthquake that devastated regions of Turkey and Syria. The response to the crisis in Syria, or lack of response, was beyond disheartening. And it's almost certain that more lives could have been saved if the proper search and rescue materials were provided earlier. The havoc that the earthquake has caused will run on for many years to come. But if there was ever a time for change for sensible and workable solutions to the question of humanitarian aid delivery, the time is now. Final words to Hazem Rahawi. We, we hope this is a moment of reckoning for everyone. I mean, it's, it's not only for Syrians, but it's in general. Definitely we want responsibility, accountability, all things related to make sure that the funding goes to the right people, but stop using or minimize the usage of middlemen including UN agencies and INGOs. I mean, we respect them. They have they have the, a different role to what we do. They can mobilize easily. But in the end, there should be a point where local organizations should take responsibility and move ahead. We are the voice on the ground. We represent the needs and we are definitely the ones who should be funded to do that work on behalf of the international community, on behalf of all benevolent countries and benevolent people that want to support us in these times of need. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. 
Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The new Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. <laughs>